Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, I thought that I was someone who was tuned in and, you know, cared about nature and, and the environment and, you know, understood these things. And I had no idea the scope of this problem. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 83 with Christian Shaw, founder and director of Plastic Tides. Christian is a waterman through and through. He's a professional kiteboarder and he's on a mission to inspire and catalyze change towards a plastic-free future using the tools of adventure, education and youth empowerment. In this episode, we talk about living life in a way that causes as little harm as possible, the ocean plastic pollution crisis and how adventure can be used as a tool for change. At the time of recording this introduction, I'm actually sat in a hotel room in Glasgow at the end of COP26, and it feels like a really poignant moment to be releasing an episode like this. I don't know how I feel about the results of COP yet, but I do know that I'm not jumping for joy in a way that I hoped I might. But the more I do this and the more I speak to people, the more I realise that human beings can be a force for good and ultimately, I think, are a force for good. I'm still working all this out at the moment, but I think that it's apathy which is the greatest threat to our planet. And I think in many of us that comes from either a sense of hopelessness or not knowing what we can do. But I think this episode with Christian and past episodes with other environmental advocates have definitely taught me that it's the little things. That if each of us do a few little things, it's a lot better than nothing. And it's actually a lot better than a couple of people doing big things. So I hope that you find this conversation hopeful and that it inspires you and that you're able to make a few changes to your life for the benefit of all of us. Okay, over to Christian Shaw. Thanks very much for doing it. Um, Obviously we've been talking for a little while so it's good to make it happen. it would be Ace, just to give us some context, talk a bit about who you are, um, what you do, and why you do it, I guess. Yeah, sure, I'd love to. So my name is Christian Shaw, and I am from Ithaca, New York, and I am the director and co-founder of a 501c3 nonprofit called Plastic Tides. And Plastic Tide's mission is to inspire and catalyze action toward a plastic-free future through adventure, education, and youth empowerment. And the uh, the path that that took me here was has been somewhat of a windy one for sure. Uh, but uh, you know, I I can say that 
I've been fortunate to be exposed throughout my life to the outdoors and different perspectives and ideas and cultures. And from a pretty early age, you know, I started to recognize issues that we were facing in the world and want to get more educated about them, you know, and, and in the interest of, you know, sending my life in, in that direction, really. So I sort of set off with that educational mindset and uh, throughout my high school and university studies just became more and more aware of the issues that we were facing on this planet. And uh, personally, I'm really interested in forests and food systems and regenerative agriculture and sort of, you know, a lot of these deeper, you know, really close to the earth sustainability issues. Um, but I'm also a waterman. Uh, I've been surfing since I was really young. I kite surf, windsurf, uh, dive, love to be in the ocean and just love to be outdoors adventuring. And so while I was in university, I was taking an oceanography class and that was my first exposure to the scope of the plastic pollution issue on this planet and particularly through the work of Five Gyres, really well-established nonprofit in the space that we look up to and uh, have worked with over the years. And, you know, they had brought awareness to these, these oceanic gyres, so areas in the ocean where you know, ocean currents converge and create massive whirlpools where you have way more trash that aggregates out in these zones. And so, you know, seeing that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Like, you know, I thought that I was someone who was tuned in and, you know, cared about nature and, and the environment and, you know, understood these things. And I had no idea the scope of this problem. And that was a huge eye opener for me. And from there, uh, I was fortunate enough to attend a National Geographic Young Explorers Grant workshop that came to Cornell University with a couple other classmates. And I actually pitched to a group of students and um, a couple of Nat Geo folks this idea to combine my passion of uh, water sports through kite surfing um, with a project to bring awareness to these, what, what I thought at the time were floating you know, trash dumps, basically, you know, so I'm envisioning, all right, we're going to get out there and, uh, you know, get some sort of hazmat suit on and a helicopter and, you know, go like bouncing across this, this, you know, sea of, of plastic waste and, and, you know, get stunning aerial photos and videos and, you know, blow the door wide open on this thing and, and wake everybody up. Uh, and, well, so reality kicks in and uh, the truth is that although there's way more trash in these areas, like the Pacific Gyre, for instance, you can't see it from the air. It's, it's stratified throughout the water column and it's like a plastic soup. And so, you know, it's primarily small pieces. Yeah, there might be a five gallon bucket here, a milk crate there, you know, and if you were, you know, flying over, you know, in a plane really low or something sure you might be able to, if you knew you were in the right spot you might be able to say oh yeah here it is you know i see the trash but it's not the kind of thing where it's just uninterrupted sea of, of floating trash uh it's because ocean plastics and their buoyancy uh change throughout their life cycle in the ocean and so 
you really do have a significantly stratified area of trash in the water column, meaning, you know, it could be, you know, from the surface level down, you know, 50 feet or even deeper, um, that you have higher concentrations of these plastics. And so that was no longer a realistic option for my project. Uh, but what we ended up landing on myself and some classmates, my co-founders was a stand-up paddleboard expedition around the Island of Bermuda, uh, to research ocean plastics and create an educational web series to particularly motivate and inspire and educate young people um, about the issue. And so we actually went straight into the schools on Bermuda uh, after that expedition. And that really sent us on our way uh, to where we are now with, with plastic tides. And so just, you know, sticking with that vein of combining adventure and science and, and the things that we're really passionate about to try and make an impact. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I mean, I'm tempted to backtrack slightly. Like you said, it's been a windy road to get to this point. And yeah, I think, you know, lots of people I speak to, some of them are born into like an adventurous lifestyle and some weren't, you know, you said you started surfing young, but what was life like for you and how did you get into these kind of sports or pursuits and how did you start understanding that the world was in trouble? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, um, so I started surfing pretty young. I grew up in Ithaca, New York, which is landlocked. Um, well, at least as far as the ocean is concerned, uh, I grew up in an area of New York called the Finger Lakes. And we have these really beautiful, long, skinny, deep lakes. So, uh, our lakes are actually, well, Cuga Lake, the one I grew up on is over 400 feet deep. And the one next to it is over 600 feet deep. And, so actually the way my family ended up in that area was because my grandfather was a sonar engineer and there's certain research that they were doing from barges on the lake because the only place you get water deeper than that is it going hundreds of miles off the continental shelf um, into the ocean. Uh, so really, really cool area. And, uh, you know, I grew up on the water, um, both on the lake and then, you know, fortunate enough to travel to the ocean. Uh, when I was a kid for, you know, like a week or two every year and, uh, and got into surfing and, you know, just through those experiences and being in the outdoors with my, with my parents and, and traveling, uh, I think as a kid, you're really attuned to, you know, things around you and just sort of like observing changes and, and, you know, things that, you know, after, you know, you come back to a place after three, four or five years and, and see whether it's development, whether it's trash, whether, you know, little things like that, um, you know, alongside, you know, what I feel is a, a really um, fortunate uh, education. I grew up in a, a small city, which is barely a city, Ithaca, New York, uh, for people who aren't familiar is sort of a little hippie enclave in upstate New York. And so really alternative sort of mindsets and lifestyles that you can be exposed to, you know, really good farmer's market and science center and, you know, nature programs and things like that. So, you know, was in a place where, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to just sort of be exposed to these ideas, you know, consistently, you know, whether 
my parents were staunch environmentalists or not, which they weren't, you know, my, and they aren't, my mom's a science teacher and my dad is a scientist, um, and works in the, in the environmental space and industrial hygiene, but, you know, neither of them were activists or anything like that, you know, just people who like the outdoors and, and appreciate nature really. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, you know, a little bit of, of, what I was exposed to when I was younger. And then um, when I was in middle school, there was a really, really cool program called Primitive Pursuits. And it's it's kind of funny looking back on it because I, I any kids that have the opportunity to do programs like this where you just learn how to make fire, you know, and, you know, learn how to use sap and bark to make a a vessel for holding water and then heat up rocks to boil the water and, you know, all these just primitive techniques and just like having fun, just being out in nature, just using what's around you and not needing anything else is just such an important lesson. Why do you think that is just to go in deep? Oh man. Cause we, you know, we, we do too much. I was just reflecting on this, Yesterday, actually, I was thinking, you know, when people say, oh, what can I do, you know, to help the environment? You know, what's the best thing that I could do to be environmentalist or, you know, help the planet? And and in one sense, if you really think deeply about it, the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like just being okay, just sitting and observing or walking, you know, being in space without needing anything else. And, you know, the second you're like, oh, but you need to go do a beach cleanup at this place. Or it's like, okay, well, now you're getting in your car, you're using different resources. So I don't know, you know, how, how, do the, how where do the scales add up if you really look deeply? And I mean, just, you know, we're getting in heavy fast here, but I'm guessing you don't feel like you've got all the answers yet. Oh, absolutely not. Not even close. No. And so that must be a difficult thing, right? I mean, we'll come on to plastic ties in detail, but it must be a challenge for you knowing that there's so much to do, but also, I mean, as you just said, we might cause harm by doing it. What, where's the line and how do you, how do you get motivated? Yeah, it's, it is a challenge. And, you know, I think for, for me, doing what we're doing right now is, is what one of the things that gets me most motivated and excited because when you boil it down, you know, we're, we're just sharing ideas and knowledge and we're talking and that's one of the oldest things that, you know, humans have done. And once again, you know, we're not really consuming heavily, you know, in this particular pursuit. Um, And so, you know, as much as that, actions that we take every day are really important. I think so much really also comes down to like you as an individual person and, you know, how you live your life on a day-to-day basis and how much you walk your talk and, you know, how that influences people around you. And then, you know, they influence people around them, you know, and things like that. And so I think, you know, any grand sort of project or plan or idea to fix something you know, is only in a certain sense, like another thing that needs to be done, you know, where there's so many ways that 
we can just live lighter on the planet as individuals. Oh, I could go into this so hard. <laughs> Maybe we should, but so is the is the solution just? I saw a ski film years ago where J.P. O'Clair said, you know, maybe we should just move into caves and try not to breathe too much. And he was being, <laughs> he was being facetious, but like, you know, I get the point. Like, is the answer that we should all go and live on regenerative, not sustainable? You know, that's a key difference, like regenerative farms. Exactly. And engage in smaller communities. And if it is the answer, how do we convince people to do that? you know, because it's such a radical change in lifestyle. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, it's funny, there's been a, a, a real homesteading bent in my household lately. Uh, my partner has been really excited about just making her own bone broth and, you know, lots of different things, canning and, and all the fun stuff. And it's, uh, yeah, cause you know, we are, we live in a modern society, a modern culture, and we're sort of, accustomed to a certain way of life and, and different things. And, you know, of course there's a really material heavy bent to, you know, everything that, you know, particularly like the mainstream culture values and what people look to as success and stuff like that. And, you know, I think it's, it's really challenging. I think it requires a lot of empathy and sort of understanding and compassion to see that, you know, many people are just swept up in this river and, you know, to be able to break out of that, you know, and look at things from a different perspective is, yeah, it's, it's unique. And it's, it's like, you should be grateful for, for having that privilege, you know, not so much as like judging other people for not. And, you know, once coming back to your sort of, you know, well, how do we convince everyone to, you know, go live on a regenerative farm in a small community. Well, if you go and do it and you are having a great time doing so, and you can express that, you know, to other people, then, you know, monkey see monkey do. I mean, people aspire to, you know, what they think is going to make them happy. And the only way that they, you know, the only sort of input or, you know, perspective they have on what that might be is what they see other people doing. Yeah, it's interesting. I think as well, it's the, you know, you you nailed it with, well, monkey see, monkey do. I mean, you talked about our access to nature earlier and kids getting on these programs. Like I was the kid that got sent on Outward Bound by school and got carted off to Scotland to go and have three weeks in the wilderness. And fast forward 14 years, I'm here. Like this is what I've been doing for 14 years because I had that opportunity and that exposure. And I think that's the thing. Like adventure is not a commodity we value in modern society, really. Um, respect for the outdoors, growing food. I think, you know, lockdown has helped those things definitely in the UK. I don't know about the States. Um, but yeah, it's also, it goes back to what you were saying earlier with um, doing nothing you know, actually engaging with the natural world and exploring it and enjoying it is what leads us to environmentalism, right? It's just doing that without flying around the world. Yeah, doing it in an intentional way, exactly. And, and you know, because when I say do nothing, you know, that could be, that very well could be what you just said, you know, 
playing and exploring in the natural world, but without, you know, destroying it really, if you come down to it. And, you know, I, I really do ascribe to, you know, the term that we've been throwing around regenerative and the idea that, you know, people with our human intelligence and our ability to manipulate our surroundings can not only be, you know, a negative impact on this planet, but actually, you know, go beyond just neutrality and, and reverse some of the impacts that we have had, um, for sure. So, you know, and maybe, you know, so when it sees, when I say do nothing, that's more, you know, that is, you know, sort of taken with a grain of salt, I think in the context of like, yeah, if you really want to go deep, there's things that you can do, but you know, in sort of the modern context. Yeah. Start, start by being like a benevolent custodian of the planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We've gone in super hard right at the start. I'm going to like backtrack and just kind of, yeah, reframe slightly. So can you talk about starting plastic tides, please? Like the inspiration for it, obviously you've mentioned a little bit, but who you started it with and, and, and how it escalated and what it is that you do specifically. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So, you know, backtracking, uh, you know, we got our start, uh, myself and my co-founders, um, met up at a National Geographic Young Explorers Grant workshop. And uh, that would be Celine Jennison, who's my uh, girlfriend, my partner to this day, and uh, my teammate uh, in life, and, uh, and Gordon Middleton, uh, who is also still working alongside me at Plastic Tides, um, and is just a, a really awesome, awesome guy. And so, yeah, I connected with those two and started bouncing some ideas around. And, you know, we ended up pulling together this expedition to go and live off of our stand-up paddle boards for 10 days while we circumnavigated the island of Bermuda. And Gordon actually has a production background. So, uh, you know, we, we went straight into not only trying to pull off our own expedition but document the whole thing and create an educational web series which we had coordinated with production company on bermuda to actually edit and release in real time while we were still on our expedition which was an interesting experience and definitely worth it in some ways but uh definitely also learned a lot of lessons i think on that first project about you know sort of trying to go too far <laughs> with certain things. Um, but yeah, that's, we got our start with, you know, these expeditions and, and it's something that, you know, I'm just, you know, this is the adventure podcast, you know, I live for adventure. This is, you know, I, you know, growing up, I was just always looking for an excuse, you know, to, to go on an adventure. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to, well, my first paddling trip was a, an a, uh, overnight, well, multi over overnight canoe trip into the Algonquin uh, Provincial Park in Canada, and uh, you know I didn't grow up like backpacking and you know doing overnight so much like in the wilderness with my with my family. So you know like all the tents and the sleeping pads, like all that gear and stuff. That's you know we you know we'd go on hikes and do all that, but you know we weren't really backpacking and stuff. And so, 
you know, that one experience, you know, was like just <laughs> really inspiring for me. And, and it was something that I sort of craved after that point, you know, just getting out there into nature, you know, with just what you packed and, uh, you know, so in the years, you know, sort of between that and plastic tides, I, you know, had done various sort of little mini drag my friends, uh, you know, into the, you know, gulch in the middle of winter to camp out or, you know, whatever, you know, brought my, dragged my fraternity brothers up the lake on, on, uh, canoes and kayaks into the unknown <laughs> kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, starting plastic tides, you know, we, we went on that trip and, um, you know, not only just the, you know, the adventure and the fun, of course, but, you know, really seeing this impact firsthand because the reason we went to Bermuda was because Bermuda is adjacent to the North Atlantic trash gyre. So in the Pacific, you have sort of the most notable, the great, you know, Pacific garbage patch as it's known. Um, but in each one of the significant ocean basins, there is a gyre because the gyres are really just the result of, of ocean currents that move in a circular fashion as they go around the various continents. And then when you get to sort of this, not middle point, but it's not geographically in the middle, but like the convergence zone, you know, there's basically an area where everything dumps out. And so in the North Atlantic gyre, actually, the level of the water is about one meter above sea level from all of the like just pressure pushing in uh, into that area of, of water, which is kind of wild. Um, but so the so Bermuda is is uniquely very close to the North Atlantic trash gyre, and it's it's like the only well-inhabited island to my knowledge with such proximity to one of these gyres. And so from a small scale logistical perspective, you know, we were able to basically have a research vessel near the gyre from which we could operate being the island of Bermuda. And so, so yeah, we went out there and, and Bermuda, of course, because of its proximity has a lot of non-endemic trash. So when you go to the beaches, you know, you really see, like trash that's been out there in the ocean that has trigger fish bite marks out of it and has, you know, fouling and, and all these things. And, you know, you'll find a, a water bottle with, you know, Chinese or Japanese writing on it that was, you know, discarded off some fishing vessel, who knows where and that kind of thing. And so that really brought us into, into contact with that. And, you know, we were able to really effectively tell that story and, inspire students on Bermuda, you know, through presentations. And, and so that really set us on our path to, to work with young people. And so from there, I'm going to just skip ahead a number of years because, uh, we continued doing expeditions. Uh, we went on the Erie Canal in upstate New York, researching microbeads from facial products and you know, did a lot of work on that and, and many other expeditions over the years looking at various research issues. And, and that's something that is still really core to what we do. Uh, but 
in the broader context of our organization, a couple years ago, we took a big step back in the interest of achieving financial sustainability and, and really solidifying our organization around a singular mission we developed the Global Youth Mentor Program. And that was based off of experience over the years, connecting with various middle and high school students and guiding them through the completion of projects in their school or community. And we wanted to take that experience and sort of the brand awareness and and uh, reputation that we had with Plastic Tides and establish something that could you know, support young people in a, in a more formal and directed way into the future. And so that's what we have today, the Global Youth Mentor Program. And it's, it's a really simple model. It's about one-on-one mentorship to support these students, middle and high school students, over an extended period of time. So basically from start to finish through the completion of a project and the goal of these projects is to create lasting, you know, permanent, potentially permanent change in their schools and communities and address problems that the world faces with upstream solutions, you know, that are solving the problem at its source from a really grassroots level. Um, and so, you know, examples of these could be you know, looking at plastic utensils in your school and just, you know, helping the school find a, a better alternative, whether it's, you know, washing metal utensils or it's a compostable option, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, hydration. Hydration is a huge area of focus um, because it's connected to so many other things and, and really creates a lot of unnecessary plastic waste, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. And unfortunately it has been really ingrained in the culture as sort of this fear-driven area that companies can exploit. So, you know, you've got, like, for instance, in a school setting, not just looking at whether or not students have access to refillable bottles or if their school is selling bottled water, but, you know, also looking at what does their hydration infrastructure look like? You know, has anyone tested the water? Do students feel safe drinking the water? Is it you know, culturally acceptable to drink the tap water and, you know, really diving deep on those issues um, so that you can solve sort of, you know, the hydration issue where, you know, every project's different, but, you know, solving it, you know, in a comprehensive manner, uh, you know, whether, and so we, we work with a really awesome partner as well on those projects, uh, Pathwater, and uh, this isn't really a plug, but um, I just think it's it is an important aspect of of uh, consumerism. You know, finding these solutions where this is a company that makes a refillable aluminum bottle that you can buy at a convenience store or grocery store, um, but it's educating people to actually take and keep that bottle and refill it and reuse it. So my first bottle that I got, I filled it probably over a thousand times and it was all dented and dinged up. And, you know, I actually gave it back to them for their museum because I was going to lose it eventually. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, you know, so, so looking at things like that and, um, you know, another one of the project models is, is looking at underutilized space around schools and how you can 
have more regenerative land management. So planting orchards and, and forests and, you know, nature preserve areas in space that's maybe just being mowed, you know, on a regular basis by the school. And so uh, a number of these different projects are organized into what we call project models. So there's, you know, things that have been done successfully in the past. And so the student and mentor can actually work through the project with, you know, resources guiding them. Uh, but then there's also students that come to us with a completely unique uh, and original project. And, you know, then once again, we're just supporting them and guiding them, you know, every step of the way. And uh, it's really just about providing that consistent support and then, you know, being there when there's big hurdles uh, to overcome. And how successful has it been? It's been very successful. So we are in our second year of the program, our second official cohort. So we started putting the program together in 2018, 19, um, officially started recruiting students in 2020. Uh, so at the beginning of the pandemic, really, and that did present some challenges for us. Um, we are an entirely remotely run organization, uh, which has allowed us to remain nimble and adaptable, you know, in the face of some of these challenges. Um, but yeah, we started out uh, during the pandemic and onboarded our first cohort of students for the 2020-2021 school year and ended up with uh, nine successful completed projects uh, at the end of the year. So we started out with about 15 students um, and uh, nine of which were able to complete their project successfully. I think we lost. We ended up with, I think we had ended up with 10 students at the end and one of them was still working on completing their project, but they're still, um, and you know, there were a couple of students that dropped out for various connectivity issues. I mean, we're working with students from Turkey to Pakistan, to India, to Peru, uh, and in the United States as well. So it's the global youth mentor program, you know, because we do work with students across the world. And, and although we're still small, um, we feel like this is really important aspect of the program and you know for one you know this sort of, sort of support is needed all over the world but also it lends a lot of cross-cultural perspectives and collaboration and insights um, you know for ourselves and the students yeah absolutely that's amazing and so if you don't mind me asking just because i'm interested in how this all works as a you know positive practical solution how how is it funded so our funding is is fairly diverse and uh, not enough at this point, honestly. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's been a grind. I mean, we're funded through a combination of grants, um, a few uh, brand appropriate corporate partnerships, and individual donations, really. So um, you know everything that we're just sort of building on year after year to an extent i mean you're essentially it's just teaching right it's like a supernatural thing to be doing is teaching these kids these young people how to do things that you know are going to positively impact the planet there's nothing yeah exactly technical. yeah no and it's and so the way we've <clears throat> set up the program for the mentors we ask that they commit five to ten hours a week you know over the course of the year basically and you know that allows them to really effectively work with one to two students. So it's, it's interesting. 
at the beginning of the program, you know, we're like trying to sort of organize things and, you know, for funding proposals and so on and, and like present our, our, you know, projected, projected impacts and scalability. And we're like, okay, we can, you know, one, one, one mentor, if they're committing five to 10 hours a week, should be able to work with, you know, up to five students, you know, that gives each student an hour or two per week of support. And what we've come to realize is that's not true. Um, that the students actually need more support than that. And to do the job effectively, it's really, it's really a one-to-one or maybe a one-to-two if the mentor is, is really capable uh, type of situation. And, and that's fine, you know? So we're, you know, we're learning as we go. We're really, really fortunate to have an excellent program director, uh, J.D. Whitman, who's been with us uh, since the very beginning of the program in early 2020. And, um, yeah, she's, you know, just been a really driving force to actually make this, this program happen and has also been really attuned to the feedback and insights that have been gathered over the past, you know, year and a half, um, of actually running the program and, you know, seeing what the kids are saying, you know, learning how the relationships really work and, and, you know, what, what this program is, is going to be moving forward. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really just that it's environmental education. And, and I would say the, the most, one of the most unique aspects, and we've gotten this feedback actually a lot, uh, from students we just brought in for our second cohort is that, uh, alongside other environmental programs that are similar that they were looking into ours provided the greatest degree of autonomy for the students. So, you know, we call our students youth leaders and we really take that to heart. You know, they're in the driver's seat. It's their project. And we're just here to support them, period. And, you know, and guide them along the way. And, uh, you know, we don't have any sort of requirements or uh, other agendas, you know, for what the students are going to be doing. And interestingly, it seems that a lot of other programs that students are, you know, looking into are much more directed like, okay, hey, students are going to come in and they're going to do this and they're going to do this and we're, you know, focusing on this thing. And uh, so, yeah, we're just trying to really, you know, just provide that basic level of, of support and let the students do the rest. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Okay. It's amazing. It's totally inspiring. And I mean, I imagine it's like really all consuming. So like, what about you? Do you still get out and enjoy? I, well, being you, I suppose. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, man. It's I mean, there's no, 
you probably could relate to this in a lot of ways, but there's, you know, I think I love being outside, you know, and, uh, you know, talking to people in person and, and, you know, going on expeditions and, you know, engaging, you know, and in that kind of way and, you know, sitting myself down in front of the computer is, is always a challenge. Um, you know, but it's, it's what's necessary, I think, to, you know, really leverage the impact that we want to make, you know, through plastic tides and, you know, and, and everything that we built and learned. And so at this point, yeah, I mean, I try and strike a balance. I, I am fortunate enough to live here in Santa Cruz and I mean, we're, we're lucky I get in the water, you know, at least a few times a week. Uh, I, I surf, I kite surf. And, you know, that keeps the, the tank full, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, get out for bigger adventures, you know, periodically. Yeah, didn't you um, go down the Mississippi this year? I did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that was the last big one. I did uh, 150 miles on the Mississippi uh, researching nurdles, which are pre-production plastic pellets and supporting the Stop Formosa Plastics Coalition, uh, which is a a group led by the Center for Biological Diversity, including uh, Rye St. James, Healthy Gulf, and the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, uh, all joining together to oppose the construction of a new mega plant for producing virgin plastics and other petroleum products uh, alongside the Mississippi River in St. James Parish, which is right smack in the middle of an area infamously known as Cancer Alley because of the incredibly high levels of air pollution. And so this this issue is really at the intersection of environmental racism and plastic pollution and water, (laughs) water pollution and uh, and really, you know, all the all the issues coming together because it's predominantly people of color, you know, living in these communities and then having absolutely no choice, you know, about the toxic air pollution that's coming from these facilities. And this plant would have doubled the levels of toxic air pollution in that area. And so uh, there's been a small victory, actually, this this uh, August. So we were petitioning uh, President Biden to entirely revoke the permit for this plant to be built. And that hasn't actually happened yet. But the Army Corps of Engineers, who is basically in charge of this sort of stuff, um, they have gone back and basically um, demanded a full environmental review of the of the project. So it's a big win and things are on hold. Um, but yeah, I was down there really trying to provide sort of a, a water centric, you know, river centric sort of storyline and focus, um, to support the work that was being done by the coalition, you know, around particularly the air quality issues and concerns, um, by getting there on the river and, you know, creating some content and really capturing firsthand, you know, what was at risk um, and sort of some of the impacts that were already being seen from 
the industry that's already there as well. So uh, nurdles, are you familiar with the term nurdles? I'm not. So kind of a funny word, not turtles. Nurdles with an N. And uh, nurdles are pre-production plastic pellets. And so they're basically what, they're virgin plastic. So they are what is made by a plastics manufacturing plant. So say you were the owner of a plastics molding facility, you would buy, you wouldn't buy plastic in like, you know, blocks of plastic because that would be really difficult to deal with. And, you know, like put into your, you know, your, all your machinery and infrastructure and, and so forth. And so, you don't buy molten plastic either because that's not practical. And so what you buy is little small beads of plastic that effectively behave like a fluid at an industrial scale, you know, in terms of feeding into hoppers and so on and so forth. So those are nurdles. So it's, it's what the plastics facility actually makes and then puts into bags and containers and so on and then ships around to people that use, you know, raw plastic, virgin plastic to create everything else. And so they're on the order of, you know, two to three millimeters, you know, maybe as big as five millimeters. So they're just small little pellets, basically, of plastic. And unfortunately, right now in the United States, the Army Corps of Engineers defines them as basically inert and non-harmful to wildlife. And under the Clean Water Act here in the United States, companies are actually still permitted to emit nurdles, basically discharge nurdles into their effluent. And so there's, the reason there's so much industry along the Mississippi River is because it's I mean, probably the only body of water large enough to dilute all of the pollution that these plants create. And so, you know, they're all along the river because, you know, the math works out right in terms of the, you know, the actual flow and the, and the quantity of water based on how much these people are, are putting out. But the situation right now is that, you know, so toxics, right? Like that's just part of the the game, like in terms of industry and manufacturing and stuff, like there's companies are allowed to discharge, you know, certain amounts of toxic liquids basically into our waterways. And in that, they are also permitted to discharge these plastic pellets, nurdles. However, when it comes to the plastic pellets, there's no real clear guidance in terms of how much they're allowed to emit. And the only real enforcement or regulation or, or monitoring of this emission is self-controlled. Um, so it's it's you know, basically self-reporting by these companies on how much, how many nurdles they're discharging into the river. And so 
um, based off of data from other plants around the world that we're able to, to get, um, our team was able to work up some projections for the expected discharge from this plant. And it's on the order of 10,000 nurdles per minute. So that's, yeah, 10,000 nurdles per minute into the Mississippi River. And so that, that's what this new plant would be discharging. Uh, and that's because if you can picture a giant factory with these little plastic beads going all over the place into this thing, into that thing, from one place to another place and so on and so forth, and they're just bouncing around and flying out of here, flying out of there, and they all end up on the floor or whatever somewhere, and then they get it gets hosed, you know, off into some gutter. And, and that's, you know, basically how you end up with all these, you know, plastics going into the waste stream and, you know, what could be solved with a simple filtration system to at least remove the particulates just isn't because it's not required. And these companies don't spend money when they're not required to. And actually, Another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that not only do they not do it if they're not required to, they actually legally can't if they're a corporation because corporations are legally bound to create value for their shareholders. And so they're not allowed to spend money to do things that are good for the environment, period. Like even if they want to legally, they are bound to take the decisions that are going to generate the most bottom line profit for the company. And so even in a situation, for instance, where, you know, the, there's a fine, say there's a potential fine to, if you don't do X, but the equipment that you would need to not do that actually costs more money than the fine. Well, what do you do? You pay the fine because that's the smart business choice. And if it just so happens that there's only a 10% chance that you're ever actually going to get caught and have to pay the fine, well, then the choice is even easier. And believe it or not, these are the situations that exist just based off of the sort of misbalance, basically, of, of the regulation and the the fines and the penalties and so on in some of these situations. So towards the start of this conversation, we talked about, and don't worry, I'm on your team. And, you know, I understand that when you say do nothing, you don't mean don't do nothing. You mean live more simply and live more gently, I assume, or from what we discussed. But when we hear about this level, you know, it's like the whole flying thing, right? What we don't, we don't need to stop flying. We need to massively tax flying or change the rules and regulations around flying. Because meant to be deliberately difficult and perhaps um, confrontational generally, like we can't be trusted to make good decisions. So we need to regulate, re- regulate it so we do. How, you know, I would love nothing more than to live on a small holding with all of my closest friends. But I worry that that's just, it's an echo chamber and it's a bubble and it hides from the reality. What do you think and what do we do? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, that's, that is the great paradox, right? Because while you're over there living, you know, on your small holding with your friends, you know, being regenerative, uh, 
there could be a massive corporation right next door destroying everything in sight. And then eventually that is going to impact you and your family and your friends, because the thing that I think a lot of people don't, well, I shouldn't speak for anyone, but something that I've recognized very discreetly is that, you know, particularly in this country, there's a lot of emphasis and value put on private property and, you know, individual rights. And, you know, I, I actually ascribe to a lot of that. Um, but when it comes to the concept of private property, well, I think that's where we need to be looking a lot more deeply because sure that land that you're on, okay, sure. That's yours. Right. But how about the air and the water? Cause those are ours. And by ours, I mean, everyone's and they don't stay in one place. And so anything that you do on your piece of land is going to be affecting air and water, you know? So, and that's where everything's interconnected. And, and I do think that the whole do nothing approach, you know, doesn't necessarily work out because, you know, we all need to drink water and breathe air. So we have to stand up and protect it. So just to bring it, make it about you again for a second, do you find this deeply demoralizing or hugely motivational or flip between the two? You, are you speaking specifically to what I saw on the Mississippi in that context? No, or? Just generally everything you've experienced and all of this issue. Like the dissonance sort of and the paradox that's created, right? With Yeah, I. it's a little bit of both, you know, I think... Um, I, I let myself get a little bit pulled into sort of the doom and gloom of the environmental just not issue, but crisis, I should say. Um, and, you know, when I was younger and, and it really didn't serve me and I, I, I've just worked really hard to stay away from that idea or mindset, you know, moving forward. And, um, I think that's the best we can do. You know, it's, it's just, you know, nothing in life is certain. And I think it's, if you just do what you feel is right on a day-to-day basis and take pride in that and, you know, be happy for that and, you know, try and live a life that makes you happy, then, you know, you can only do so much that you can do. And, and that's that. So, yeah. yeah, I guess I is that, that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. No, I'm just interested because I get to talk to lots of inspiring people, right? And I think some of the feedback we get a lot is that something felt more hopeful than they than they thought, maybe like a listener. And, you know, but you've got, you're a human being, right? You have, you know, mental health that needs managing. And I just, yeah, you've answered it well. But it's that whole thing of, you don't just wake up and put your cape on and, go out to plastic tides, you know, here I am to save the day. I assume it's, you just said it's, sometimes it's harder to get out of bed, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and honestly, for me, I, I do derive a lot of just my sort of zest for, for life from being in the outdoors and, you know, enjoying the places that I'm trying to protect. And I think that's so much of it, you know, it's just, if everyone were able to experience and appreciate, you know, the natural world in the right way, you know, I think we wouldn't be facing 
nearly as many of the issues that we are. Totally. Yeah. So that's a nice way to draw it to a close. And then I always ask two questions at the end of every episode and um, interpret them however you want. But the first is what scares you? That is a good question. What scares me? Well, the ocean scares me on a pretty regular basis, fortunately. And, uh, and, and people, man, people and, and what we're capable of both, you know, uh, and, and, and that also inspires me too. And in, in more ways than it scares me, but, but nonetheless, yeah, it's, it's scary. Well, it brings me on nicely. What brings you hope? I could I could say the same two two answers actually. The ocean and 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 people, man. Really, like that's you know, and uh, yeah, that. But yeah, just meeting people like yourself and and you know, other people who are just switched on, you know, to how we can provide for ourselves, be happy, and also live in harmony with the planet. And I think all those things really are achievable. And it just, you know, we're just, as a culture, um, particularly, you know, Western culture, I should say, you know, we're, we're a little ways away from that still. Uh, and we've got a lot of things to, to reckon with. And, you know, for instance, this, this whole thing that recently here in the United States, the whole supply chain thing has been coming up on, on the news. And, you know, you hear people talking, oh, you know, oh, we don't, you know, suppliers don't know if they're going to be able to get their stuff in time for Christmas. And, you know, kids like parents, have, have, kids have been begging their parents for months and months for these toys and parents are worried if they're not going to be able to get it and, and this and that. And I'm just thinking to myself, the house is on fire. And you're worried about what's going to be under the tree, you know, like. Totally. Yeah. And it is, I mean, there you go. It's scary and it is hopeful in equal measure. But I think like you say, people particularly, there's more, there's a lot of us out there who think this way and feel like this. And sometimes it can feel lonely, but it's not. And you know, it's ours to fix, right? We're the, we're the next generation. So. Yeah, man. And, and with technology, you know, I'm going to add one more thing. The thing that really gives me hope is that technology has connected us in such a way that positive change and, and a, and a real sea change is possible. You know, ideas can spread like wildfire and, you know, with the way that the world is connected now, I think a greater, awakening and you know a shift of consciousness is 100 possible yeah ace right we'll leave it there thanks very much thanks for listening for more information visit the adventure podcast at co.uk podcast is a cold house production and is hosted by matt pycroft and produced and distributed by alex hall and orla omori you can get in touch at info at the or 
or follow along on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast.